0: When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. Now buy our products! I think i may have bitten off more than i can chew in this one now it's time for an introduction and no one no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth i never said "Mm, you dirty rat this is about trickery fraud about lying what i actually did say was judy 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 Welcome to Film Myths. What can I say? This man needs no introduction. Walt Disney. What else is there to say about this man that hasn't already been said? Voice actor, producer, and beloved icon. It's safe to say that he is the only animator who everyone around the world knows, to the point where every animator is compared to him, even if the comparison is kind of unfair. Hi, all Miyazaki guys. I mean, Miyazaki and Disney were both very influential they in their specific regions of animation, Disney, of course, being Western animation, and Miyazaki, of course, being Eastern animation. But they were widely different people and had very different roles. You see, uh, Miyazaki is the traditional producer, director, and screenwriter, and Disney, well... Well, I'm not quite sure what he was, if I'm to be completely honest. I mean, he didn't draw, he didn't draw anything after 1929, so you couldn't really call him an animator exactly. He didn't really direct much either. In fact, when he was asked about, well, what exactly do you do, Disney? He said, well, I like to think of myself as a honeybee. I h- hang over there, I take a little bit this, and I buzz it in and I make honey. Point is, I think he was much more closer to a producer in the traditional sense. He knew how to get all the talented people there and get the best out of them, even if he wasn't necessarily the talent. Now, based on the type of show this is, you- you know what the topic discussion is. <laughs> Haven't you heard? Disney was a racist. <laughs> <Various> <laughs> <satellite> <laughs> <poles and> <laughs> he buried himself alive frozen sons. He owes me fly <laughs> by. I, I just woke up. Shut up. Yes, there have been a lot of... unflattering things about Walt Disney. Some of them are true. Walt did have a temper. He did rout out communist animators. Some of these rumors are false. He was not a racist or an anti-Semite, although he definitely was culturally insensitive. what made the Miss <laughs> Sally. Johnny didn't mean no harm. He just tried to be like Brer Red. I told him a tale about the tall baby. However, no employees ever claimed they heard Walt say any anti-Semitic slurs. Even employees who hated him. In addition, Walt regularly donated to Jewish charities. I think the idea of Walt being an anti-Semitic has more to do with people he associated with as opposed to anything he himself said. For example, he did agree to meet with Lenny Reifenstahl when she visited visited America from Germany. He was also an ally of the, holy crap this is long, the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideas, or the MPAPAI. Seriously, when even your abbreviation is a mouthful, you need to fire your PR guy. Many members of the MPAPI were anti-Semitic. However, Disney did employ several black and Jewish employees, like Floyd Norman and the Shermanman Brothers, at a time where no one else would hire them. He also did campaign to get James Baskett, the actor who played Uncle Remus in Song of the South, to get an Academy Award. He succeeded and Baskett was the first African-American man to win an Academy Award. Hattie McDaniel was the first African-American woman, or African-American period, to win an Academy Award for 1939's Gone with the Wind. Fun fact, she was also in Song of the South. Unfortunately, Bassett couldn't accept the award because the ceremony was held in Atlanta, in the South, during the 1940s. You can explain the story from there. So, for the reasons that I listed, I don't feel comfortable calling Disney a racist. If anything, I'd say he was a bit progressive for his time, and I must emphasize, for his time. Now, of course, there are more rumors about Disney. However, I think it'd be far quicker if I just gave you his life story instead of listing a rumor and debunking it. Now, I want to make something perfectly clear. This is a very abridged version of Disney's life. Disney, uh, despite what you may think of him, lived a full life. He probably did more things of note in a decade than most of us will ever do. So documenting everything that he did would take would simply take too much time. So I'm only going to give you the Cliff Notes version. Alright? Alright. Now that I've gotten that disclaimer out of the way, I present to you the life of Walt Disney. Shorter, smaller, and definitely cut. This should be most enlightening. Walter Disney was born in Chicago in 1901. He was the fourth son of Elias and Flora Disney. At an early age, Walt developed an interest in drawing. He took art classes as a, as a boy and eventually got a job as a commercial illustrator at the age of 18 at the Pesman Rubin Commercial Art Studio. There he drew commercial illustrations for advertising, theater programs, and catalogs. He also befriended fellow artist Oob Ewerks, and I do apologize if I'm mispronouncing that name, of course. In January 19, as as Pezmen Rubin's revenue declined after Christmas, Disney and Ewerks were laid off. They started their own business, the short-lived Ewerks Disney Commercial Artists failing to attract many customers, Disney and Eworks agreed that Disney should leave temporarily to earn money at the Kansas City Film Ad Company, run by A.V. Gauger. The following months, Eworks, who was not able to run their business alone, also joined. The company produced commercials using the cutout animation technique. Disney became interested in, in animation, although he preferred drawn cartoons such as Mutt and Jeff, and Coco the Clown. With the assistance of a borrowed book on animation and a camera, he began experimenting at home. He came to the conclusion that cell animation was more promising than the cutout method. Unable to persuade Cargur to try cell animation at the company, Disney opened a new business with a co-worker from the film ad company, Fred Harmon. The main client was the local Newman Theater, and the short cartoons they produced were sold as Newman's Laughograms. In May 21, the success of Laughograms led to the establishment of Laughogram Studio. He hired more animators, including Fred Harmon's brother Hugh, Rudolf Ising, and Ewoks himself. The Laughogram cartoons did not provide enough income to keep the company been afloat, so Disney started production of Alice's Wonderland. Not Alice in Wonderland, Alice's Wonderland, as in Alice Possesses Wonderland. The result, a 12 and a half minute, one reel film, was completed too late to say laugh Studio, and the studio went into bankruptcy in 1923. Disney moved to Hollywood in July 1923, although New York was the center of the cartoon industry. He was attracted to Los Angeles because his brother, Roy, was ill with tuberculosis there. Disney's efforts to sell Alice's Wonderland were in vain until he heard from New York film distributor Margaret J. Winkler. She was losing the rights to both, uh, out of the Inkwell and Felix the Cat cartoons, and needed a new series. In October, they signed a contract for six Alice comedies, with an option for two further series of six episodes each. Disney and his brother, Roy, formed the Disney Brothers Studio, which, of course, later became the Walt Disney Company. Early in 1925, Disney hired an Ink artist, Lillian Bounds. They married in July of that year. This marriage was generally happy, according to Lillian, although according to Disney's biographer Neil Cambler, she did not accept Walt's decisions meekly or his, statuses, his status unquestionably, and she admitted that he was always telling people how he he was. Uh, Lillian had little interest in films or the Hollywood social scene, and she was, in the words of, Historian Stephen Watts, content with household management and providing support for her husband. Their marriage produced two daughters, Diane, born December 1933, and Sharon, who was adopted in December 1936, born in December of 1933, six weeks before Diane was. The Disneys were careful to keep their daughters out of the public eye as much as possible. By 1926, uh, Winkler's role in the distribution of the Alice series had been handed over to her husband, the film producer, Charles Mintz. Although, <laughs> the relationship between him and Disney was sometimes strained. The series ran until 19... 19- twenty seven by which time Disney had begun to tire of it and wanted to move away from the mixed format to all animation after Mintz requested new material to distribute through Universal Pictures, Disney and new Works created Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. You would only know this character if you played Epic Mickey and there's a good reason for that in February 1928 Disney hoped to negotiate. A larger fee for producing the Oswald series, but Mintz decided to reduce the payments of the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit series, despite the fact that they were, in fact, very popular. Mintz had also persuaded many of the artists involved to work directly for him instead of Disney. Disney found out that Universal Studios owned the intellectual property rights to Oswald. Mintz threatened to start his own studio and produce the series himself, if Disney refused to accept the reductions. Disney declined Mintz's ultimatum, and lost most of his animation staff, except for Eworks, who chose to remain with him. Disney and Eworks were in trouble. They needed an idea, a character that could replace Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Then one day, they came upon an idea. And that is how they created Mickey Mouse. Disney's original choice uh, of the name was Mortimer Mouse, but uh, Lillian thought it was too pompous, and I agree. She suggested Mickey instead. UWorks revised Disney's provisional sketches to make the character easier to animate. Disney provided the voice until 1947. Mickey Mouse first appeared in 1928 as a single text screening of the short Playing crazy, not Steamboat Willie, contrary to popular belief, but it and the second future, the Galapin Guacho, failed to find a distributor. Following the nineteen twenty-seven sensation, the jazz singer, the first ever talkie, Disney synchronized sound on the third short, Steamboat Willie, to create the first produced sound cartoon. After the animation was complete. Disney signed a contract with the former executive of Universal Pictures, Pat Powers, to use the Powers Cinephone recording system. Cinephone became the new distributor for Disney's early sound cartoons, which soon became popular. In 1930, Disney decided to trim costs from the process by urging Ewoks to abandon the practice of animating every separate cell in favor of the more efficient technique of drawing key poses and letting lower paid assistants sketch the in-between poses. <laughs> Disney asked Powers for an increase in payments for the cartoons. Powers refused and signed Eworks to work for him. Starling resigned shortly afterwards, thinking that without Eworks the Disney studio would close. Disney had a nervous breakdown in 1931, which he blamed on the machinations of powers and his own overwork, so he and Lillian took an extended holiday to Cuba to recover. With the loss of powers as a distributor, Disney's studios signed a contract with Columbia Pictures to distribute the Mickey Mouse cartoons, which became increasingly popular, including internationally. Disney, always keen to embrace new technology, filmed flowers and trees in full color in three trips three-strip Technicolor, all subsequent silly symphony cartoons were in color. Flowers and Trees was popular with audiences and won the Academy Award for Best Short Cartoon at the 1932 ceremony. Disney had been nominated for another film in that category, Mickey's Orphans, and received an honorary award for the creation of Mickey Mouse. By nineteen thirty-four, Disney had become dissatisfied with producing formulaic cartoon shorts, and began a four-year production of the feature-length cartoon *Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs*. When news leaked out about the project, many in the film industry predicted it would bankrupt the company. Uh, industry insiders nicknamed it Disney's folly, and like Seward's folly, Disney quickly proved him wrong. The animated feature cost. $1.5 million to produce, three times over budget, but of course it was a huge critical and commercial hit. Disney won another Honorary Academy Award, which consists of one full size and seven miniature Oscar statuettes. The success of Snow White heralded one of the most productive eras for the studio. The Walt Disney Family Museum calls the following years the golden age of animation. The studio then began working on Pinocchio in 1938 and Fantasia in November of the same year. Both films were released in 1940 and unfortunately neither performed well at the box office. Partly because the revenues from Europe and had dropped following the start of, ni- of World War II in 1939. The studio on- made a loss on both pictures and was deeply in debt by the end of 1941. In response to the financial crisis, Disney and his brother Roy started the company's first public stock offering in 1940 and implemented heavy salary cuts. The latter measure and Disney's sometimes high-handed and insensitive manner of dealing with staff led to a 1941 animator strike, which lasted five weeks. While a federal mediator from the National Labor Relations Board negotiated with the two sides, Disney accepted an offer from the Office of the Coordinator of Intern American Affairs to make a goodwill trip to South America, ensuring he was absent during a resolution he knew would be unfavorable to the studio. As a result of the strike, several animators of the studio, and Disney's relationship with other members of the staff was permanently strained as a result. The strike temporarily interrupted the studio's next production, Dumbo, which Disney produced in a simple and inexpensive manner. Shortly after the release of Dumbo in 1941, the U.S. entered World War II. Disney was then required to make propaganda films. Unfortunately, the military propaganda films only generated enough revenue to cover costs, and the future film Bambi, which had been in production since 1939, underperformed on its release in 1941, and lost $200,000 to the box office. On top of the low earnings from Pinocchio and Fantasia, the company had debts of $4 million with the Banks of America. At a meeting with the Banks of America executives to discuss the future of the company, the bank's chairman told its exec- his executives... I've been watching the Disney's pictures quite closely because I knew we were lending them money far above the financial risk. They're good this year, they're good next year, and they're good the year after. You have to relax and give them time to market their product. Disney grew to be a lot more politically conservative as he got older. He switched allegiance to the Republicans, and he became a generous donor to Thomas E. Dewey's 1944 bid for the presidency. In 1946, he was a founding member of the Motion Pictures Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. And each time I say it, it gets harder and harder to say it. They said that they believe in the American way of life. We find ourselves in sharp revolt against a rising tide of communism, fascism, and kindred beliefs that seek by subversive means to undermine and change this way of life. During the second Red Scare, Disney testified before the House of Un American Activities, where he branded Herbert Sorrell, David Hilberman, and William former animators and labor union organizers, as communist agitators. Disney stated that the 1941 strike led by them was part of an organized communist effort to gain influence in Hollywood. I did say this would be a waltz in all. uh Look back at Walt Disney, guys. <laughs> in the early 1950s, Disney produced Cinderella. His studio's first animated feature in eight years. It was popular with critics and theater audiences. Costing $2.2 million to produce, it earned nearly $8 million its first year. Disney was less involved with it than he had been with previous pictures because of his in- involvement in his first entirely live-action feature, Treasure Island. He continued to produce full-length animated features including Alice in Wonderland in 1951 and Peter Pan in 1953. Disney began to devote less attention to the animation men, entrusting most of its operations to his key at Animators, the Nine Old Men, although he was always present at story meetings. For several years, Disney had been considering building a theme park when he visited Griffith Park in Los Angeles with his daughters. He wanted to be in a clean, unspoiled park where both children and their parents could have fun. He visited the Trivilei Gardens in Copenhagen, Denmark, and was heavily influenced by the cleanliness and layout of the park. In 1952, he received zoning permission to build a theme park in Burbank, near the Disney Studios. This site, however, proved to be too small. In a larger plot in Anningham, the south of the studio, was purchased. To distance the project from the studio, which might attract the criticism of shareholders, Disney formed W.E.D. Enterprises, now Walt Disney Imagineering, and used his own money to fund a group of designers and animators to work on his plans. Those became known as the Imagineers. After obtaining bank funding, he invited other stockholders in mid-1954. Disney sent his Imagineers to every amusement park in the U.S. to analyze what worked and what pitfalls or problems that were in the various locations incorporated their findings into his design. Construction work started in 1954, and Disneyland opened in 1955. The opening ceremony was broadcast on ABC. It reached 70 million viewers. In 1964, Disney produced Mary Poppins, based on the book series by P.L. Travis. The, The events of making the film were dramatized in Saving Mr. Banks. Now, not all of that film is historically accurate. Some people have criticized it for portraying Disney too friendly. I would counter argument that P.L. Travers is also a lot friendlier in the film than she was in real life. During 1966, Disney cultivated businesses willing to sponsor Epcot. He increased his involvement in the studio films and was heavily involved in the story development of The Jungle Book, the live action musical feature The Happiest Millionaire, and the animated short. Winnie the Pooh, and the blustery day. Now, Disney had been a heavy smoker since World War I. Disney was diagnosed with lung cancer and was treated with cobalt therapy. On November 30, he felt unwell and was taken to St. Joseph Hospital, where on December fifteenth, 10 days later, his 65th birthday, he died of circulatory collapse caused by lung cancer. His last words were, I am not kidding, Kurt Russell. You just listen to the old Pork Chop Express and take his advice on a dark and stormy night, all right? When some wild-eyed eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the back of your favorite head up against a barroom wall, and he looks you crooked in the eye and he asks you if you've paid your dues. Well, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye and you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. Yes, yes, I understand, Mr. Russell. Anything else? Like I told my last wife, I says, honey, I never drive faster than I can see. Besides that, it's all in the reflexes. All right. Now, there's a lot of interpretations to those words, but I like to think about it this way. Kurt Russell was one of Disney's biggest stars at the time. And I like to think that Disney was pitching a movie with the idea of him to star or play a major role. You see, even on his deathbed, Disney wanted to create. Keep in mind, this was the abridged version of his life, and I'm exhausted <laughs> from speaking. I'm gonna get some water, and we're. And I'm going to end this episode right now. So thank you for joining me tonight. This was Film Myths. And I will see you sometime soon. Very soon.